Someone asked me recently, what is the coolest part of my job as CEO of Clear Motor Marketing? I said, well, that's easy. The fact that every day I get to dig into our clients' businesses to learn not only what makes it tick, but what we can do as their partner to deliver the marketing that truly matters to their business. It's like being in a living, breathing case study every day. And for that, I am truly blessed. Hello, Collisions YYC listeners. It was an overwhelming sense of pride that I wanted to share with you that the marketing agency that I had the pleasure of co-founding and leading is turning 15 years old. Yes, their motive marketing is 15. I wanted to shout out a huge thank you to all of our clients, past and present, as well as our vendors and all of the incredible team members we've worked with over the years to make this milestone possible. Check us out at clearmotive.ca to learn more about what we can do that matters to you. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to my guest this morning, Ms. Catherine Backus. How are you doing, Catherine? I'm great, Tyler. How about yourself? Oh, fabulous. I'm really excited to have you on. I know I can't even remember how we got connected. Um, I usually, as my audience knows, I speak to a lot of guests that are either centralized in Western Canada based on kind of our audience. But recently I've been branching out going, I want to talk to people that are the experts that play in different areas that are relevant to my audience here in Western Canada. And we're going to talk about climate today. So it's relevant to all of us. We're all in this together. So a little bit, you are Director of Climate Finance and Science at Intact Center on Climate uh, Adaptation. I'm sorry, speech is out of this morning. Adaptation. Talk to me a little bit about your role. What do you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? And what's your role look like? Yeah, of course. Well, so the Intact Center, we are an applied research center at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. And we help homeowners, communities, businesses, and governments reduce risks associated with climate change and extreme weather events. So that's particularly in relation to flooding, wildfire, and extreme heat. So of course, well, what does that actually mean? So our team at the Intech Center, we've done the research and we've developed practical resources to help reduce the risk of flooding, wildfire, and extreme heat at the level of the home, community, and commercial real estate. So how should homes, communities, and commercial real estate be built or retrofitted to be more resilient to extreme weather events? We've also investigated the importance of retaining and restoring natural infrastructure. So wetlands, grasslands, and forested areas. And we've also investigated the um, health implications of extreme weather. Now, under my personal domain, I focus on engaging institutional investors. So we could think of that as pension funds and other financial market participants. So financial institutions, regulators and supervisors, credit rating agencies, not to bore you with that list. Oh, I, um, I have a business audience. They're, they're okay to be bored with, okay, the, with okay. the details. No, absolutely. <laughs> That's great. And and so really just helping those financial market participants understanding and incorporating the physical risks of climate change into investment and business decision making. So some of my key areas of work uh, include the first ever quantitative analysis in Canada investigating the impact flooding has on the Canadian housing market. And just as a little teaser, there is an impact. Um, and we, our team has also developed a globally scalable framework to help investors identify key physical climate risks that could impact the business operations of a company within a given industry sector and what measures need to be put into place to reduce those risks. So of course I could go on, but uh, oh, we will, we will. Okay. There's so much. Um, so I'm curious, the trends that you're seeing around just who's Who's concerned? Who's asking? Like you talk about institutional investors on a large global scale, whether that could be pension funds, it could be, uh, that's not new for those groups to look at risk on a much longer term horizon. But yet I'm on your website and I'm, you know, working with nature at home. Simple strategies about where to grow, how close to your house to have trees, where you should prune them. I'm just curious what you've seen being in this industry, the trend from 
large corporations and large institutional organizations globally looking at this in a longer term, the homeowners going, oh, wow, I need to start thinking about these things in a, in a different way as we suffer through floods and wildfires. Has it been, is this trickling its way down to the everyday human or the everyday citizen who's going, oh, wow, I need to make different decisions when I build my house versus the institutional investors that I would I guess we're probably been concerned about these things for a few, for a while now. So I'd say a little bit of both and then neither either. So <laughs> okay. the, the investors, I actually worked on Bay Street in Toronto uh, for five years uh, before I moved to the Intact Centre. And the topic of environment, the topic of climate, the topic of sustainability, that's been around for a very long time. Like we can go back to the 1800s and sustainability was at play um, in those in that economy as well. But more recently, it still was kind of a little bit of a faux pas and like, oh, you tree hugger, you like, okay, uh, yeah, okay. it's not really part of our investment decision making. I've really noticed a shift in the last, I'd say, three to five years, but really two to three years where the financial market is taking this much more seriously because they're starting to realize impact um, across. They're noticing these eroding and cascading effects throughout the economy. And they're recognizing like there were great financial costs. Of course, there's social costs as well. But from mm-hmm. a financial perspective, there are great financial costs. So the insurers our frontline center, property and casualty insurers are the ones who are experiencing the impacts of extreme weather right off the bat. And we can go into detail about what the actual costs of climate change are, but the insurers on the front line, I'd say the next line is actually financial and other financial institutions, such as banks, uh, looking at mortgage portfolios. I had mentioned the quantitative analysis that we did at the Intact Center, looking at the impact flooding had on the Canadian housing market. Well, mortgage portfolios could potentially be impacted by extreme weather. So you notice these financial institutions are really getting on board and have really been affected. And then to your point about the homeowners, I think in the past it's been you really only paid attention if you or a family member were impacted. But these are ha- these extreme weather events are happening so often now, like anecdotally, just myself thinking about when I was in high school to now, it's 20 years and I'm aging myself, but <laughs> 20, 20 years of I don't remember storms being this big. I don't remember storms coming down with with that much force, um, so much precipitation coming down in, in one event or as many wildfires as we're experiencing. I don't ever recall Toronto being covered in smoke and those you live out west so you experience this every summer but that's something new for for out east I would or, even or say in the last Canada. in the last 5 years I've lived in Calgary since 2000 and this was a phenomenon that only started about 5 6 years ago I have a friend who works flies, flies air tankers and he's been in that industry for 20 years and he goes we're having the worst year ever and then we're having it again and then we're having it again and he's been in that space 20 years like basically a frontline frontline worker from that perspective but even Calgary, you know, when we had that really bad summer about five or six years ago, that's the first time I, it really landed for me. And I've been here for 24, 24 years. So it is still relatively, but you know, like the New York city blaming Canada and those kind of things, those are new headlines from a, from a smoked out perspective that I don't think any of us have seen before. And I love that we're being blamed. And yet it's a, all of, it's a global impact. And we know the reasons that are causing this. And we know that it's the burning of fossil fuels that is causing 
um, these extreme weather events to manifest. Um, we know from global authorities, such as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that a certain degree of climate change is it's already priced into the system. We're not going backwards. Climate change, and they use the word irreversible. Climate change is irreversible. So we can mitigate against greenhouse gas emissions all we want, and we should, because that's going to avoid the worst impacts of climate change in the future. But these events are going to continue to become more severe. And so what we can say in, in regards to trends is over the medium and long term, we know what's going to happen. And so we should expect more uh, extremes and variability when it comes to those hot, dry and no rain conditions and extreme rain, rainfall and storm surges on the other hand. So to your point, I think homeowners specifically are, are more they're getting on the file more than ever before. Um, but I still think that there is, you can see all the news, the devastation. Look, in, in Libya, 10,000 people passed away because of a catastrophic flood event. But that doesn't affect me here in Canada. And so I think there's a little bit of a dissociation until it actually impacts you. But, and I'm sure we'll get into this as well, but what are the things, what are the easy, practical, meaningful, cost-effective ways I can make my house more resilient? What can my community do to make it more resilient. And we need to start having these conversations because a lot of conversations are, we need to do more research. I don't agree with that. I I agree. Research should continue to be done, but we're at the point where research has already been done. We know what to do. Now is the time to act. And if we don't act urgently, that could be people's homes, livelihoods. um, And that's a level of financial and social cost built onto themselves. I really appreciate your sense of absolutism around like no i disagree we don't need to do more research we've done the research <laughs> we've seen it proved out when you think of fi- like the, the, the three pillars that you, you named fire flood and extreme heat events it feels like one kind of underpins so many of them which being extreme heat and i think you you rhymed off some statistics when we were on our you, you blew me away on my on our first on our, on our pre on our pre-podcast call with some of your statistics but i think it was you referenced montreal or a certain parts i think it was believe as like by this year there'll be this many more days over 30 and this will contribute directly to increased human fatalities like there was some like to your point of like we already know where it's headed we're not we're not it's not all of a sudden going to reverse you want to share maybe just some of those trends back to the absolute nature of your comments of like we have the data now we need to start taking action what are some of those points that are 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 beyond dispute no matter what we do to mitigate further challenge like you know further greenhouse gas emissions of course. Well, so from respect of extreme heat events, so the Montreal example um, that that you remember, uh, currently right now, Montreal experiences on average 12 to 13 hot days per year. Now, a hot day would be considered anything over 30 degrees Celsius. So by 2050, 2060, Montreal is going to be experiencing approximately 54 days that are above 30 degrees Celsius. And so when we look at Toronto as an example, um, your temperatures can get up to the hottest temperature days get up to around 36 to 37 degrees by 2050 2060 that's going to be 42 degrees celsius uh for what's a what's the hottest day on on record and so that has implications cascading through what's the implications to those with pre-existing health conditions what about the elderly or those experiencing homelessness how is our infrastructure, our critical infrastructure, our utilities going to withstand our, our demand extreme... for ener- the energy needs we need to combat that? <laughs> 
Correct. And listen, air conditioning is not a silver bullet, but air conditioning is drastically going to help people keep cool during these extreme heat events. Now, to my point about it's not a silver bullet in the heat dome that British Columbia experienced or the West Coast experienced in, in 2021, 619 people died due to extreme heat events. Well, 46 of those people had access to air conditioning. And so again, to my point, it's air conditioning is not a silver bullet, but air conditioning is a very important part of keeping people cool, keeping that body temperature cool. Because even during the night, the, the night temperatures don't drastically drop either. So how do people in high rise apartment buildings without air conditioning built in? So we need to start thinking about air conditioning as a fundamental right. But what else should we be thinking of? You just mentioned power, power backup generation. So currently um, we have the statistics for Toronto. I apologize. I don't have it for, for other places in nope, Canada because okay. the former chief resiliency officer of Toronto gave us this data, but there are currently 500,000 people living in apartment buildings that are 30 years of age or older that are over eight stories high. And only one third of them have power backup generation to last more than a few hours to run the elevators, just the elevators alone. And so imagine if an extreme heat event is coupled with a major power outage, 619 people who died under good utility conditions may not be the case when a power outage goes out and the the losses could be so much more catastrophic. Looking at last year, the extreme heat events that impacted Europe, 60,000 people died because of extreme heat. Um, So we really have to start thinking about, well, what are the things that we can do at the level of our home? So I could put heat resistive curtains and siding to my home, uh, ensuring the insulation is better. So then again, keeping the air conditioning in and the heat out and then behavioral actions such as checking on our neighbors, checking on our elderly community or those with pre-existing health conditions, making sure that those individuals have enough water, that they're um, checking on them a few times a day because those are the people who are most at risk of dying. It's the elderly or those with pre-existing health conditions or, of course, those those experiencing homelessness. But all of this goes back to what are we doing at the level of the home and community to ensure that we're more resilient for extreme heat or what about wildfires or, or flooding? And, and so that all needs to be part of this conversation. Is there also a bigger conversation around, and I'm just listening to you talk, you know, fires and floods make it on the news in a big way. They're big and there's a huge loss of property. There's not always, and I'm saying this very fortunately, the loss of life doesn't seem to equal to when you talk about extreme heat events, which is, feels like a much slower adversary in the sense that, oh my God, my town burned down. Well, that's a very dramatic thing. It makes it on the news, but extreme heat is a very slow like a villain (laughs) when it comes to its ability to impact human life. Well, so actually it's quite the opposite, but you're right. And the way that the media projects this, like when you're watching the news and it's extreme heat event, they show photos of, or they show video of people at the beach. They totally do. Yeah. And so it's like, well, that looks like a lovely day, but (laughs) when loss of life and actually, and listen, there are social costs, there's complete devastation. So when your home is flooded out on average, it tends to be a flooded basement. Your home isn't being washed away. Now, when we look at what happened in Nova Scotia, you saw the extreme of that where homes were actually being washed away. Wildfires are completely different. It's not a flooded basement or it's not one part. It's the home is, the house is there's complete completely, catastrophic completely gone and everything and all your possessions as well. <laughs> 
Well, that's exactly it. And on average, I believe it's $60,000 out of pocket for individuals. So the insurance will only cover so much. So $60,000 on average, and it takes approximately two years for people to get back into their homes. So where are these people living? They're living in motels, hope like you're not living at the best Western at a few hundred dollars a night. Like you're living with family, you're living. So it's a very uncomfortable situation for a I believe on average two years. But to your point about loss of life, and I'm trying to be delicate here because mm-hmm. of course, and especially this wildfire season, I believe currently we've lost six firefighters and, and that's devastating. One life is uh, one too is, many one, lives One is lost. too many. I agree with you for sure. Mm-hmm. But we have early warning systems and we have a better indication. And same with Nova Scotia, there were four people who passed away in Nova Scotia and that's devastating. But and again, to be delicate, one life is too much. But when it comes to wildfires and flooding, we have early warning systems or we should have early warning systems. And we have a better indication of getting people out of harm's way as quickly as possible. So the loss of life tends to actually be lower with wildfires and flooding events. On the flip side, though, those extreme heat events, people are dying. So in retrospect of the heat dome in 2021, 619 people died. And so the loss of life is actually even more catastrophic when you're talking about extreme heat, because it's kind of that slow killer. It's, well, where do I go? I can't leave an area like a wildfire or a flood event. Extreme heat. You can't evacuate an extreme heat event. Yeah, you can't evacuate an extreme heat event, especially if you live in an urban area. It's like, well, I come down and I go under a tree Well, urban areas tend to have lack of natural infrastructure. And there's actually been research done. If you have two streets right next to each other, one with tree canopy, so coverage and shade versus one that does not. And it's just pavement and dark surfaces that absorb heat from from the sun. Those there are drastic differences in temperatures, 10 to 15 degree differences in temperatures. And that's what's known as the urban heat island effect. So it's urban areas that are tend to be affected most by extreme heat. And that's where you're most of your loss. Uh, less of shade, life is. more concrete surfaces, less absorption and more. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. So Interesting. I, I, think I was in Sevilla, t- the, Sevilla this summer uh, and it was 42. And, but if you went to the parks and you went to the areas that were very been designed for hundreds of years to provide shade, you could still function. But if you got out in a street where there was nothing, you couldn't find shade fast enough. <laughs> Just using those environments if they've, to a certain degree, have built with that in mind. City parks, yeah. huge uh, tree canopies, and also the environment to support it. But it made it, it, made it serviceable, <laughs> if you will. And guess what? There's, socio, um, there's social implications to that as well. Guess what neighborhoods have access to the tree canopies and the green spaces? They're going to be higher net worth uh, worth areas that people probably have air conditioning in their homes and comfortable homes and apartments and condos. Well, the lower income... Really increases the risk of increasing that divide. You're increasing that divide, that vulnerability. um, And that's, in my opinion, that's unacceptable. And we need to be pinpointing specifically the most vulnerable and how do we ensure that they're also protected. This is the, there are, there are neighbors, there are. And so we, we need to work together to pinpoint specific vulnerable areas in our communities. So from a business perspective of the financial, who bears the burden? Because we all, we all do in one way or another, but is this government led from your perspective? Do you, like, where does business come in from home builders and how they're building their houses versus what the consumer will pay maybe a little extra for that house that has been 
treated in a way that is going to be more sustainable in extreme heat event? Like, how do you see that kind of netting out uh, from who carries the load? (laughs) Or how? So it's an interesting cycle because right now we're in a housing crisis. So we need to build millions of homes within a short time frame. So we need to build these homes quickly. Where are we building these homes? How are we building those homes? Uh, building codes take on average 10 years to update. So builders can just build homes as they've been building homes. But something as simple as installing a sump pump in all brand new homes, specifically on those. And so first thing, we shouldn't be building on floodplains. If we're talking about flooding, don't build on floodplains. If you do build on floodplains, they shouldn't have basements and all homes should have sump pumps and backwater valves. And we don't actually know where the floodplains are because floodplain maps on average across the country are 20 to 25 years out of date. So builders aren't held accountable to, they're just being told where to build and they build as much as possible, as quickly as possible with as cheap resources as possible. So we need to make sure that the way we're building our homes is incredibly important. But of course that then, if it's more cost to the builder, that's going to filter through to the consumer themselves and the purchaser of the home. Well, and we also have an affordability challenge as well as a, as an inventory challenge when it comes to housing, depending on where you are in your cycle. That's exactly and, and we it. haven't even touched on interest rates and the cost to get access, <laughs> which is another well, podcast. Exactly. This is another podcast, <laughs> but it all ties together to increase or decrease that divide you talked about socioeconomically. Yeah, and and we also have to think about if you're building a home in in the wildland urban interface. So this is where wildland vegetation, trees, bushes meets human settlements. If you build a home with fire resistive siding, so this is class A fire resistive siding, which basically roofing and siding like the roofing can basically look like shingles and it's it's basically the same cost when you get into metal roofs and things it becomes more expensive Mm -hmm. but fire resistive siding drastically makes a difference in whether a home will burn down or not and a post analysis was done in Lytton, british columbia where it was actually determined the houses that did have this class a fire resistive siding actually made a difference in whether the home burned down or not but that fire resistive siding when the home is built it basically costs the same amount of money. It's when the home has to be retrofitted. So if you're retrofitting the home with fire resistive siding, if you're retrofitting a home to put in a sump pump and backwater valve, which realistically the sump pump and backwater valve is not as costly as say fire resistive siding. So, and again, two very different perils, flooding and, and wildfire, but building a home as resilient is almost is the same cost as building as a home as we're building them now. So why aren't we building them as resilient homes? It comes down to cost when you're actually retrofitting the home. That's where it becomes more costly. So in my opinion, homes should just be built as more resilient because that's the, actually the more cost-effective strategy. And then if your homes are more resili- resilient, there's less of a chance that then you're going to need an insurance loss. So then your insurance company will have to, doesn't have to come into play or will have to come into play for a lot less money. And then the overall cost in the economy, and we can go into the cost of insurable claims, but the rule of thumb is whatever the insurance costs are, three to four times is the uninsurable cost. So that's money coming out of the pockets of individuals, businesses, and governments. And so you have to think about those costs. And again, those eroding and cascading effects throughout our economy. It's not just the builders. It's 
it's the builders, it's the municipalities, it's the homeowners, it's how we're building the homes, it's what the insurance costs are um, or the insurance losses and how to prevent uh losses as large as we're seeing in the system right now because we want to ensure the insurability of the Canadian housing market. We want to make sure people can still get insurance because that means people can buy and sell their homes. Here in Canada, you need insurance to purchase a mortgage. So then it's going to be the stability of the Canadian housing market that is going to be reliant on whether these homes are resilient or not. We're seeing what's happening in the United States. I don't know if you're familiar But there are certain insurance companies in California, Louisiana, and Florida. And one of the underlying reasons of what they've said is they're removing all home insurance. They're not providing any new home insurance in in those states. And one of the the reasons being is the underlying extreme weather risk in California. It's the wildfire risk. So in Canada, currently, there are 1.5 million homes that are uninsurable for flood risk, meaning the risk is too high that insurance companies can't charge a premium high enough that anyone would realistically be able to afford. So insurance has been removed in those areas. Now, the federal government is coming in and they're working on a a, a national flood insurance program for those uh, 1.5 million homes, approximately 10% of the Canadian housing market. But you're uninsurable for flood risk. You can still get home insurance. It just means you're not covered for flooding. It's just there, there's a there's a yeah there, there's a, there's a, there's a note on your file. <laughs> but th- that's exactly it. But in the United States, what's happening is there's no new home insurance at all, and so we have to think about what those implications are for the housing market. Like those again, those cascading effects right. throughout throughout the housing market. Um, and that's when it comes to wildfire risk, because wildfire risk is a very different risk than that. And again, it's the catastrophic loss of a home compared to a flood event. It's on average a flooded basement. Again, the home isn't being washed away. But again, so it's it's everyone in society that is literally being impacted. And I don't like the term of all of society approach because everyone uses it like, who am I actually calling on for this action and this? But it literally has effects throughout throughout the economy. So from your perspective, in terms of the work you do around, like we've done the research, we know now some of the impacts, is this literally just hearts and minds and campaign from the perspective of educating and having us as a homeowner, you know, thinking about the chain of events, I've got a builder, I've got a municipality, I've got um, building supplies, developers that are looking for better ways to, better materials to build the home with, but I'm a homeowner and I'm just trying to afford this home. Just thinking about that long cascading of, of, stakeholders that need to be influenced for this like listening to you it's straightforward but yet there's a lot of moving parts to get this change to actually start to land and be affordable in a time when people are just trying to get a home get a place to live that's exactly it and 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 you're completely right and that's exactly what our business strategy has been like again we're an applied research center so we've done the research and not to toot like our own horn but the intact center our research it doesn't just focus on researching the problem and talking about issues so we're not just like oh we've done this research and there's this really big problem okay guys see you later and we walk away <laughs> in our research what we like to do is here's the problem We've done the analysis, but this is actually what you should be doing about it. And these are the organizations. These are the individuals or communities that should be really focusing in on that. And that's why we've had the incredible opportunity to work with wonderful individuals and groups throughout all levels of government, the corporate sector, and even to the individual homeowner perspective. We've gone out to individual homes and um, worked with them and what needs to be done around your home. Um, And so all of our reports, so whether that's focusing on at the level of the home or community for flooding, 
wildfire extreme heat, we have 50 to 100 page reports. But what we actually do is who wants to read a 100 page report? No one has the time, but we, we need to show that the research is there. But we actually take that information and we distill it down. And as an example, we've created one page infographics at the level of the home for flooding, at the level of the home and community for wildfire, extreme heat for home and apartment. You had mentioned earlier about the natural infrastructure, how we can be incorporating natural infrastructure into, into I've our I've got home one of your infographics up, like working with nature at home. And it's very like for under $250, you can do this. And I love how you've taken exactly your point, a high degree of research and credibility, and we've done the work. And oh, by the way, here's how you as, the, as, as just a homeowner trying to make a difference can very cost-effectively make um, data, like these are backed up. These will make change. So I really appreciated the, the depth and breadth of what I found when I was cruising through your website. <laughs> yeah, and, and for your listeners, like if they're interested, like go to the Intact Center website. Everything is freely available. Like this isn't a commercial. Like this can actually help you go to reports and resources and the infographics are all, all, all there. And just to offer a little bit more of an explanation, as, as an example, our three steps to cost-effective home flood protection infographic. So it offers key measures to reduce the risk of basement flooding. So in three easy steps, any homeowner can perform the actions uh, listed on that infographic for limited cost and time. So those measures would include cleaning out your east troughs, putting window well coverings over window wells, installing sump pumps and backwater valves, and then checking your sump pumps and cleaning out your backwater valves. And you're going to say to me, Tyler, you're going to say, well, some of this stuff is so self-explanatory, like sweep the leaves away from the sewer grates. Well, I believe it was a $1 million flood in Guelph, Ontario, where I think it was 30 homes were flooded out because people didn't in fall go down to the street level and sweep leaves away. That's not a climate change issue. That's just a maintenance issue. (laughs) But these are things that you can do around your home to reduce your risk of basement flooding. And it's not just on the homeowners um, to be looking for this information, like where should I possibly go without even knowing the intact center exists? Where should I possibly go for information to reduce basement flooding? All levels of government could be distributing this information. As an example, municipal governments, this information could be distributed through property tax mail-out notices. For businesses, businesses could be distributing the infographic to their employees and customers and clients as a form of good governance. Because if an extreme weather event happens and say this business has their own resilience measures put into place and they're resilient against this extreme weather event, but if their customers and their employees, their homes are flooded out, that's on average seven days that those employees are coming into work. And so as a form of good governance, businesses should just be distributing this information. Um, and this all can be done with our home flood protection infographic, but as well as our wildfire protection infographic for those located in the wildland urban interface. Uh, so again, where that wildland vegetation meets human settlements, and these are just areas at greater probability of, of wildfire events. And then our extreme heat infographics for anyone living in a home or apartment in a condo. And again, it's specifically those living in the um, urban areas that experience the urban heat island effect. It's interesting, personal, like 2013, as many people in my audience lived through the Calgary floods. And we were out of our office for, I think, 31 days, 32 days. And it's interesting because we scrambled, we got it working, we got everybody working remote. So when COVID came, another extreme event, all of a sudden, we left the office on a Friday, and by Monday, we were fully up and running because we'd put right. the infrastructure in place from that other event back in 2013, yeah. completely unrelated. But because we go, okay, something might happen again, I have no idea, could not have predicted the Black Swan event, which was COVID. 
from that side of it, or we certainly weren't looking at it that way, but because we got prepared after learning our lesson from one event, it made the second one, we really had no downtime. We really were able to kind of get our team up and running almost right away. And the team also felt connected because they went home and still had access to all the infrastructure that allowed them to do what they wanted, what they needed to do. Exactly. And just referencing that Calgary flood, I believe it was $6 billion worth of a GDP impact. And so that's a real number. number. So again, talking about, well, what are these financial costs? There, There are massive costs when these extreme weather events happen. And that's just from a financial perspective. Again, that's not people being out of their homes, not able to go to work, the the mental health implications, all of that. Um, And just going back a little bit in regards to like our work and and working, say, with the federal government, like, okay, well, how could infographics be used by the federal government? Well, we've actually been very lucky to work very closely with the federal government, other organizations and contributing to Canada's national adaptation strategy. So this is the first national adaptation strategy that's ever been released in Canada. And that came out last year in November for consultation. And a few months ago, it was finalized and the final report was released. Um, but this report it identifies long-term transformational goals, but also these short to medium-term objectives. And so, and I really like those short-term objectives because mm-hmm. not in 2050 would I have no, to do. No, you can it's, get your head, you can get your head wrapped around them, and they feel a little bit more tangible. Mm-hmm. Well, and it holds the federal government accountable as well. So, by 2025, as an example, we need to ensure that 50% of Canadians have taken concrete actions to better prepare and respond to climate change and extreme weather at the level of their home. So our infographics, that is the way, that's a perfect way to achieve that that goal. And I, again, 2025, I'm like, oh, that's literally tomorrow for all intents and purposes. (laughs) That's it. So in 2025, we can now hold the federal government accountable. Well, our 50% have 50% of Canadians do they understand the risk facing their homes and have they taken actions or at least been given information to take action to reduce their risk? So we can, there's this accountability and and that's what I really respect about Canada. We want to be held accountable. What are those metrics and targets? What are we actually focusing on? I'm curious from, uh, you talked about obviously the increase in, so are we true to think, and this is, I talked to some of my friends like, oh man, the insurance companies have to be taking a beating. They have to be like paying out more than they've ever paid before. You messaged, you mentioned earlier, alluded to some of the trends around what's happening, insurance claims. Is that reality? Is that like the average business conversation? If insurance comes up, like, oh, insurance is getting more expensive, but look at the impact that if to, to be in the, in that business, is that a real, or is that, is that perceived in terms of what's happening there? Hmm. No, so I can give you some stats if you like. I thought, I thought, yeah, I thought you might be. I thought you might be able to. <laughs> so, so realistically, and it's not to say that life and health insurers are not impacted, which they are. But really, when you're looking at the impacts of extreme weather, it's the property and casualty, um, the property and casualty insurers that really are being the most impacted. And you can almost tally those losses instantaneously when an extreme weather event happens, more or less. Okay. Like we have data on a year-to-year basis since 1983. So what you're looking at is specifically the annual catastrophic insurable losses for Canada. So a cat loss, this is any event, flood, wildfire, hailstorm, windstorm, that triggers $25 million or more of insured losses. So between 1983 to 2008, losses range from approximately $250 to $450 million for extreme weather events per year. From 2009 onward, there was a shift. And if you actually plot these on a graph, the graph is curvilinear. And you really notice a discernible upward trend in losses at around 2009. 
So losses now average approximately $2 billion a year. So remember, before it was that, that's a four. That's a four. That's a four x from the high range from the earlier set, right? To be clear, okay. <laughs> yeah. there you go. So two billion dollars a year, with thirteen out of the fourteen of the last years being above one billion dollars. Now let's put some of those numbers into perspective. So for last year, two thousand and twenty-two, losses reached three point one billion dollars. So that ranked at the third worst last year in Canadian history. Now, in comparison, two thousand and sixteen was the worst last year in history. That was the Fort McMurray. Uh, wildfire event where the losses were approximately $6 billion. But what was interesting about that is that that was a localized event. 75% of all losses that year were localized in Fort McMurray. When we look at 2022, which I believe is a better example of what Canada is going to see going forward, there was no one weather event or location that took the pot for all of the damages. So storms were geographically dispersed. And we have to remember that's what climate models have predicted. And that's exactly what Canada is getting. And so we can see this year geographically dispersed storms, too, from wildfires and flooding and extreme heat events across the country. Now, I had mentioned insurable versus uninsurable losses before, but let me give you some numbers to that. So the numbers that I just gave were insurable losses. But the rule of thumb is multiply those amounts by three to four times and what you get is uninsured losses. So for 2022, approximately $3 billion, that means approximately 9 to $12 billion coming out of the pockets of individuals, businesses, and governments. Now for governments specifically, that's money coming out of budgets for hospitals, schools, infrastructure development. And with COVID-19, and you had mentioned interest rates, inflation, monetary policy, <laughs> there's no excess money for spending. So we have to think about those socioeconomic implications that are happening because of climate change as well. In the indirect, but yet directly linked. <laughs> Correct. It's easy not to see them when you think about, oh, we're looking over here at this problem and this impact, but let's run that. Let's extrapolate that, that, that situation um, and the, 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 what are you seeing in the, or I guess in your role, do you have interaction with the business community? And I'm thinking, I'm putting my entrepreneur hat on here for, for a second and trying to take the, okay, this all sounds very terrible. Um, but yeah. we're on top of it and we're trying to get ahead of it. There's gotta be an incredible opportunity for businesses on both sides. One to mitigate, which we can talk about, like not only at a homeowner level, but what are you doing if you're running a large operation where you're in Northern Canada, where you're in some of these high, my, my wife works in oil and gas and they had to shut down a series of their well pads. Because the fires were going through, uh, so you know that's the average. The average individual doesn't necessarily focus on that. But I've got to think that there is massive entrepreneurial uh, economic opportunity here to step in and get involved with these changes. Like I, I'm trying to look again. I'm a silver lining kind of guy, so I'm looking at the fact that do you have a lot of conversations in your life with business owners, entrepreneurs, startups that are like, hey, we've got a thesis. What's the data, and how do we now turn that into a you know a viable solution or a viable business? to help with where we're a hundred percent headed. <laughs> so very similar to what we had talked about earlier about homeowners that really, unless you're impacted, you're not really going to take it into consideration. I'm noticing the same thing very much with the business community and traditionally or historically transitioning to a greener economy has really taken precedence on what we need to focus on in regards to climate change. I believe that's a disservice. So do I think mitigating against greenhouse gas emissions is incredibly important? Yes, because again, that's going to avoid the worst impacts of climate change in the future. But what I'm going to say is 80% of the conversation is focused on transitioning to a greener economy. 
very little of the conversation is focused on adaptation. Now, do I believe tides are changing? Of course. Mm, I think more people, especially with these events that are happening, are recognizing that, oh, we, we need to start adapting. We need to be more prepared and resilient for extreme weather events. Now, in regards to the business sector, we've been very lucky within our own work to work within the corporate sector. So we work very closely with institutional investors, financial institutions, regulators and supervisors, credit rating agencies, securities commissions, boards of directors, and how to incorporate the physical risks of climate change into investment decision making. But what are those risks? And so you have global framework and uh, standard setting bodies. I don't know if you're familiar, the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, which are now being amalgamated into the International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB. As we start to do more of an accepted overarching standard versus pockets and country and jurisdiction based, right? Which is causing, I understand, quite a few challenges. Even north, south of the border, who's focusing on what? How do you measure? How do you report? <laughs> Trying to standardize that, right? <laughs> Well, and that's exactly it. There's this lack of standardization in the market. And even with ISSB, there are still other frameworks and standard setting bodies. So there's still a mishmash and a mixed bag of where should I be disclosing? How should I be disclosing? So are we consolidating in the marketplace? Yes, which that's a great thing. I And I think that these frameworks and standards, they've done a really great job offering a foundational layer of what should be disclosed in regards to climate risk. But specifically in regards to physical climate risk, because this is what I eat and breathe, when I look at what's being offered, I think we actually need to be going a step further. And so that's where our work really comes into play. And this framework that we've developed, which complements international and global frameworks and, and standard setting bodies, and this framework that we've developed can be applied across industry sectors, and we've dubbed it the climate risk matrices. Um, And a report that we just came out with transitioning from rhetoric to action, integrating physical climate change and extreme weather risk into institutional investing. It's a very long title. Um, It's powerful, though. I read it this morning. I was like, oh, we're going to talk about this for sure. (laughs) No. And and the idea behind this report, it's showing what's in the marketplace and where there are gaps. And what we've done in this framework is we've identified the top key physical climate risks that could impact business operations within a given industry sector while identifying what measures need to be put into place to reduce those risks. And to tell you that we do this all in one page per industry sector. So again, it's not a hundred page standard setting body that we need to look through a hundred page document. In one page, we identify what the key physical climate risks are. We even narrow those so we could have a list of five to six. We narrow them down to the top one or two. Then we identify how those risks are going to manifest at site level and then what measures need to be put into place. So you're going to say, well, what is this? What is the benefit of this framework? Well, for businesses, this is a template. So I can look for the geographic range of Canada. These are my physical climate risks. So this is what my peers, this is what we all, these are all the risks that we're all facing. But this is what I should be doing to mitigate against that risk. So now this is a template for businesses to say, listen, there's a hundred different risks that I could be mitigating against and allocating time and resource time, money and other assets to to mitigate against or to to achieve these initiatives. But I don't most businesses are not going to have the time and money to do a hundred different initiatives. What are the top one or two things that we offer? So does this framework offer everything? No, but it offers a very good, what are the top one, two things I should be doing? So it's a template for businesses. 
But for investors, it's actually that benchmark. It's that standardization. Now, investors- Are these companies doing the things they need to do to mitigate my risk as an investor? (laughs) Correct. And we even, in the one-page document, we even offer what key questions investors should be asking. And basically, the questions sum up to- have you identified to, I'm an investor asking these questions of an issuing company. Have you identified these risks or are you mitigating against these risks? If either of those answers are no, no, we've not identified our risks or no, we're not mitigating against our risk. That's a red flag to the investor and whether they want to allocate assets. That would be a red flag to say a financial institution and whether I want to loan money or provide insurance or do I want to provide insurance at a higher premium or a loan at a higher rate. So now what we're doing with the climate risk matrices is we're allowing financial markets to appropriately price risk and opportunity in, in the system. And, and so that's what the marketplace is asking. Well, how do I properly price risk? Well, you need to not just identify your risk. You need to know how to mitigate against your risk. So it's that risk management that is really key here. Could you give us an example? And um, so how do I download this? Because I'm on your page and it keeps just shooting me around. And I, I really want to download it. I want to send my audience there as well. It looks incredibly interesting. But no, can, please. Can you, yeah. Can you, can you give us a snapshot? Like picking, well, I, I'm going to talk about the energy sector because I live in Western Canada. And my audience is usually very centralized around that. Um, can you give us an example of uh, Western Canada, a specific industry, and how, how would that show up? Like some tangible, because it sounds incredibly interesting, and I'm, it sounds like a real playbook on what to look for and what to ask. So give us maybe a little bit more. I, I'm, I'm curious as hell right now. <laughs> of co- no, of course. So let's use commercial real estate, because commercial real estate okay. is applicable in, in any place that you live. So you're in Calgary, Calgary I'm in Toronto, very applicable in, in both cities. So commercial real estate... We have, and so just to clarify, where did we come up with this information? Well, we obviously did a literature review, but it's actually speaking with subject matter experts. So we speak with six to 10 subject matter experts, senior level executives with more than 15 years of experience. So bringing them all together, that's 200 years of experience. They're able to pinpoint exactly which risks are in the system, which are risks and which are not risks. Mm, A quick example We've done one of these climate risk matrices for the T&D sector, and initially we had uh, the transmission and distribution lines, and we had extreme heat as a risk. And it was the subject matter experts who were to say, actually, here in Canada, that's not a risk yet. Obviously, we know as extreme heat becomes more of a risk, but T&D lines are currently built to 55 degrees Celsius, which is the same as southern United States. So... Until temperatures get up to that point, extreme heat, at least for that portion of T&D yeah, lines, at, at is the, not going to be an issue. Well, that, and that's such a great example of building for what could come, right? Like that's a great example of a mitigated risk that was taken based on a reference point to what we learned from being in the Southern US. So that, I think that's exactly. a great real life example of like, okay, we're not exposed there because we've made decisions that allow us to have some buffer and have some room. That's exactly it. But now where are we exposed? So let's go back to commercial real yep. estate. So for commercial real estate, there are six different climate risks that could impact commercial real estate from flooding, wildfire, extreme heat, wind, ice and snow loading and permafrost loss, specifically in northern communities. So of those six. So again, when you're talking with an investor who's not a subject matter expert, potentially in commercial real estate or physical climate risk, that's still a lot of information. So we identified the top two physical climate risks that could be most material to business operations. So that would be flooding and wind. So let's just hone in on flooding just as an example. So we identify flooding as the key risk, 
Below that, we identify, well, how is flooding going to manifest? Well, flooding at the commercial real estate level tends to manifest at main floor or sub levels, which is parking lots, thus impacting critical infrastructure such as HVAC systems, which then shut down business operations within the commercial real estate. So we identify the key risk, how it manifests, and then what you should do about it. Well, in regards to HVAC systems, you should be elevating HVAC systems above potential flood levels. And if you're unable to do that, you should put a drain in that room and then flood proof the room. And so we know this from speaking with real estate associations, the subject matter experts such as RealPAC and Bowman. We've worked very closely with those organizations. So we're able to identify what the key risks are and what you should be doing about it. So any, and there's 20 different things that commercial real estate could be doing, but that is the key risk for flooding. That is the key measure that should be put into place to reduce that risk. Should we have emergency plans and should we be putting up flood walls and sandbags and should we be elevating HVAC systems and putting sensors on elevators? There's a whole slew of things, but what's the one thing I need to do now to ensure my business operations are still operational? HVAC systems ensuring critical infrastructure is is flood proofed and or elevated above potential. Back to your earlier point, the ability to do that on a new build is significantly easier and probably not as much of a cost impact than having to retrofit, which is, I know what they had to do. Part of the reason our building was an old uh, heritage building in Calgary, why we were so long to get in, because the, everything was in the basement and we had water up to the main floor for multiple days. And, yes. and so to your point, if it was on the sec- second floor, even on the first floor, we would have been back probably in half, in half the time, but it was a hundred year old building. So yeah. every, everything was a challenge. <laughs> And, you know, speaking about the cost, so uh, water sensors on elevators. Now, why is this important? Well, if you have someone stuck in the elevator and you're being flooded out, this happened in Toronto, actually, during the major flood events there in in 2013 as well. Um, Two gentlemen almost died. Literally, they were up to their their noses in water. That's like a bad movie that we've all seen before. (laughs) So two gentlemen almost died. And thank God, like they were able to be um, evacuated out. But with flood sensors, the moment it hits water, it goes up to a higher floor that flood sensor in a new build is $500 when you're retrofitting per elevator is $3,500 yeah okay and so that cost alone just for flood sensors so what is putting HVAC systems in the appropriate place instead of having to like shift or put buy a whole new um, system and then put it in place at a higher floor like the costs are exponentially different um and and then yeah they're very different 100 percent, and then also the opportunity for the insurance company to step in and 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 also um reward the right behavior <laughs> you know and and, and the, i had a recent conversation make not to make this super personal homeowner conversation but i had a conversation with i was like well my wife and i travel a lot i need something that can shut the water off if anything goes wrong if there's an excess flow even if the toilet decides to run I want, and I said, reached out to my insurance company. I said, Hey, if I put this in, it was like a thousand dollar item. They said, Oh no, we don't recognize that as, as valuable. And it was kind of that moment. I'm like, really? Okay. Well I do. So I'll deal with it anyways. But it was just the response I got. I'm not picking on anybody or calling any names out, but it was interesting where, you know, Oh, if you put in an alarm in your car, you'll get a discount or you, you know, those certain incentives that are there to make it feel a little bit like, okay, we're in this together. But the fact they're like, no, we just, you know, we might get around to, you know, um, giving credit to a device like that. But right now it's just not on our list. So sorry, too bad. And it was a little bit of like, oh, I feel like we're out of sync here on this problem. It's probably right after I talked to you, actually. I, I, I started doing some research. But I just found it was an interesting moment of like, oh, wow, I felt my insurance probably could have stepped up. But again, it's just the timing it takes for these things to work their way through the system as well. 
And do you know what? I believe there's close to 200 different insurance companies in Canada, and each one is going to have their own different yeah. protocols. So oh. we'll talk afterwards about who your insurance <laughs> yeah, company totally, is. Yeah. We'll take but, that offline, know, absolutely. Yeah, we'll take that offline. But I know that there are insurance companies that if you do put flood resilience measures into place, they will knock off um, some premium from because it actually it should be a discount. Like I makes know sense. You're reducing risk for all parties involved, right? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly it. If you have a sump pump, that's actually a discount on your home insurance policy with with some carriers. So I agree with you. If I'm taking proactive measures, okay. Are you cleaning out your east troughs? I can't measure that, but I can measure that you have a sump pump or a backwater valve, and that is something that I can actually I know has direct benefit. Something as um, a flood alarm. A flood alarm isn't going to stop the flood from happening, but it's going to signal that the flood happened, and that's for insurance companies where the costs actually lie. If they can get to the problem faster, there's less damage. We usually when you're talking about a flooded basement, you. Sadly, you're talking about sewage water that usually backs up into the home. And so you actually need to have that water out of your home within two to three days or the house becomes uninhabitable. But there are cap limits on flood insurance. So you could be looking at your cap limit between ten dollars to $20,000. But the average cost of a flooded basement is $43,000 across Canada. And so if your cap limit is, say, $10,000, then you could be on the line for $33,000. So it's not just about, well, I need to have these instruments in place. I also need that liquidity in hand. I need to be able to pay for these extreme weather events when they happen, because some of them, such as sewage water, that needs to be out of the house as quickly as possible. Yeah, because of the... And I I had friends that were like, oh, the problem now is what was in my basement and how long it was in there. Like, yeah. Knowing so many friends that got impacted in 20, well, if you lived in Calgary in 2013, if you didn't, you certainly know, knew someone uh, very closely and intimately that did get affected by, by that. Curious, just reading one of the lines on your site, which I really, there's no point talking about TCFD, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, ESG, a very popular acronym these days, or any other companies later. At the end of the day, this stuff doesn't translate into action that lowers the risk profile of the investable universe. Are we getting, and I think I've heard you say it, and I'm not trying to put words, too focused on maybe some of the wrong things? Versus what I'm hearing your organization really focuses on is like, okay, we already know this. Let's start talking about the actions we can take versus trying to turn back the dial on the world we live in when that temperature gauges are, the thermostat's already been, is getting turned up all the time. You see, I completely agree with you. Yes. Uh, You see often, and and maybe now that I'm saying it, you're going to pay attention to it a little bit more, but you'll see big announcements coming out of governments, out of big organizations well, we're going to put a lot of money to do more research. And and it's almost, to me, I'm like, well, we're at the point, is that a delay tactic? I was going so to say stall tactic. To be, yeah, like, it, so you don't have to be held accountable. And again, that's what I really appreciate with the federal government, with the Canada's National Adaptation Strategy. By 2025, we can start holding them accountable for these uh, for these measures that, or for, for these targets that they've put into place. And so, yes, I completely agree with you um, that we need to start acting and we need to start acting with more urgency. And again, I always go back to we need to transition to a greener economy. Yes, that is incredibly important. But if your home is washed away or burnt down or your elderly parent passes away because of extreme heat, what is the cost of that? And how does that then change your life? Should we be mitigating against greenhouse gas emissions? Of course, because I want to make sure my kids and my grandkids are less impacted by the the effects of climate change well into the future. 
but that's not going to stop what's being done now. And so we need a better way of balancing our initiatives. And just to give a little bit of perspective, you can allocate assets, time, resources to a whole bunch of different resources. But for every dollar that you put into place for adaptation, that saves you three to eight dollars over a 10 year period in cost avoidance. And in my opinion, that's a conservative estimate. Now, I know a lot of people are going to say, well, that's cost avoidance. That's not a return on investment. I'm actually not getting that money back in hand. But I actually think about that as an opportunity cost that's not being lost. You're paying a dollar now, so you don't have to pay three to eight dollars over a long term period or when the extreme weather event happens. And you also have to remember once you put that adaptation measure in place, it takes effect tomorrow. So if the extreme weather event comes tomorrow, it takes effect then and then the week after and then the month after. So it's not just a dollar for three to eight dollars. It's a dollar for three to eight dollars for that extreme weather event then three to eight dollars for the next extreme weather event and then three to eight dollars for so it's a compounding effect it's, it's the it's the of opposite savings. of depreciate the dollar's not depreciating it's appreciating because this will happen it's just what and when but you can use it and benefit from that dollar in multiple instances that's a cool perspective i appreciate you laying it out that way and when you think about opportunity costs like we're siloing these conversations between transition and adaptation i think that this is actually a perfect way to connect those two silos for every dollar of adaptation is now three to eight dollars we can put towards transitioning to a greener economy. And what, what, what are those for every dollar of adaptation? Well, what are those adaptation measures? Well, guess what? You don't have to do research. We've done that research and I'm not trying to toot our own horn, but I go back to we haven't at the Intech Center just identified that there are problems in the system. Yes, there are problems and there are risks in the system, but we're giving practical, meaningful and cost effective ways to reduce those risks. So as an example, the quantitative analysis we did for the Canadian housing market, there were a few findings of that paper, but one of the key findings was that homes located in flooded communities compared to their non-flooded counterparts experienced an 8.2% reduction in the sold price of their home. Meaning that's a flood discount and not in a positive sense. So for the average cost of a of a home in Canada as of September 2023, that was $650,000. That flood discount would mean a home located in a flood community would lose 50, approximately $53,000 mm-hmm. off of the value of their home. But we don't just say, here's the impact to housing price. We say, okay, here are seven actions that you can take. You need to be implementing home flood protection information at the level of your home. We need to be updating flood risk maps. We need to be retaining and restoring natural infrastructure throughout community and and home design. And so there are practical actions that we offer throughout our reports that, again, it's not just there's a problem. There's actually something that you can do about it. And here are the practical actions that you can take. And from the perspective, your perspective, and I love your passion for this topic. It's so now I'm getting the fiery version of Catherine now. It's great. I love it. I love it. It's like, oh, and I believe about this and I'm going to stand on it. Um, is it just so much? Is it just another business owners, citizens, all the challenges that we have? Does this just sometimes be too much for people to, because you listen to you talk, it's very, it's very matter of fact. It's very uh, quantifiable in terms of the way you've laid it out. It seems like there's no other, there's no reason why we wouldn't but yet we still seem to be pushing it off and pushing it down the road. Is it just simply that we get overwhelmed? And I'm talking very broad sense, of course. <laughs> to someone course. Who, who bases all of her decisions and opinions on research, <laughs> I'm, get, no. I'm putting you into the qualitative world right now. <laughs> no, and, and my heart 
is who I am as a person. I can see why this is very overwhelming. When I watch the news, it's this is I do this for a living. And yet when I watch the news or when I talk to my friends and they're talking about their Instagram feeds or TikTok feeds and how it's so overwhelming with all of the devastation. And that's just from a climate perspective. That's not even geopolitical issues and, <laughs> and everything. That's not cost of living and interest rates and um, housing prices. It's overwhelming everything that's happening. And so I'm very sympathetic and I feel it too. And so this is why I always, I recognize that the conversation about climate change can be a very political conversation, even though it shouldn't because the science, I don't, it's not your opinion. It's what the science says. And I follow the science, but it can be very depressing because there's so much going wrong so often now, but this is why. And I think part of this conversation needs to be about hope and what I like to bring to all of my comments. So thank you so much for this is just a natural transition, but I really appreciate you you saying this because it really is about highlighting hope. And I like to bring hope into my presentations. I always joke that first half of my presentations are very depressing and then the second <laughs> half can be very hopeful. And that's where the hope comes in. What are the what are the tell me what I need to do? What's the one thing I can do at the level of my home? What's the one thing for my business I can do? What should my community be doing? To have answers, I, I think us as humans, we are very, we're regimented in a sense, we like routine, we like answers. And so from an evolutionary perspective, being able to say there's a problem, but there's also something we can do about it Great is going to be very comforting. And so, and I talk with a lot of people every time I do a presentation, they're like, we didn't even know your organization existed. And so thank you so much for giving me this opportunity because it's about saying, Hey, we're an applied research center out of a university. We're not trying to sell anything. All of our resources are freely available for people to use, print them off, use them, give them to family, give them at your business work with us. We'll put your logo on our, on our infographics and it's it's all yours to use freely available, but there are resources available. We know what to do at the level of the home community, commercial real estate. How should we be incorporating natural infrastructure? We know what to do. Again, it comes down to, we just need to deploy it. And I understand that's time, that's resources, specifically money. And that's a time where governments, municipal governments don't have enough money. So what, what is the cost benefit analysis? And again, for every dollar of adaptation, conservatively, you're saving three to $8 over a long-term period. And so we have to think, and that's not even including the social or those mental health costs as well. Seems cliche to say, but when's the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago? But if not, then how about today? And I'm hearing that very loud and clear from some of the tactics and some, literally I'm looking at the working with nature at home and some it's planting a tree literally are some of the tactics of, you know, I like what you said about it. You know, give me, what can I do now? Give me something to do. And then I will then I'll feel not only that I'm participating, but it gives me hope that tomorrow's better than yesterday. I do, I do, I do appreciate how this can go. Oh, this is pretty heavy, but I could feel even your own energy for this, um, you wouldn't be doing it if you didn't feel there was ability to have impact. And I don't know you very well, but I'm going to boldly say that out loud. <laughs> but, and just to confirm, and, and I, I mentioned the 100-page documents, and then we're distilling it down into, into one-page infographics. 
just so your audience understands, like the Intax Center, we work with organizations like the Standards Council of Canada, the Canadian Standards Association. And generally speaking, for any of the reports we put together, that's 60 to 80 subject matter experts from across the country with relevant expertise to offer those practical, meaningful and, and cost effective ways to reduce risk. So it's not just us saying that, oh, this is good things to do. This is actually engineers, building developers saying around your home, this is actually what you should be doing. And logically, if you think about it, if we're talking about flooding, the grading of your home, some of the homes actually have grade. Like, look at some, there's reverse slope driveways that you, if a high precipitation event comes, water is being directed towards the <laughs> you home. Bu- you built a funnel <laughs> into the front of your house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but even around the home, there's uh, the grass or, or soil is being directed towards the home. How do you change the grading of the soil? Like, very simple things to do could make the difference in whether you have a $43,000 flooded basement or not. And again, it's not going to prevent it from happening, but it's going to drastically reduce the chances and or the impact from it happening. And at the individual level, it gives you the feeling that you actually are participating and doing something. And I think that's correct. Catherine, exactly. what again, lo- there's that hope. hundred <laughs> percent. Oh, yes. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. So uh, Intact Center Climate Adaptation adaptation.ca it's a great website and i do love this isn't selling anything it's free resources it's backed up it's researched i'm i've been i was cruising through it this morning uh, as i was drinking my coffee looking at everything that you had in here in the in the anticipation of this if someone wants to reach out to you and connect with you is it through the site is do you are you a linkedin fan like there's a million channels what do you do you have a preference yeah, please. LinkedIn, always. Uh, Catherine Backus, B-A-K-O-S. Um, I'm, I'm there in Tech Center on Climate Adaptation. Please also go to our website. You can see all of our staff. Feel free to reach out. So my email is kbackus, B-A-K-O-S, nice. at uwaterloo.ca. Please always feel free to send me an email. And again, yeah, those resources are freely available under reports and resources. Check them out, download them, share them, all of that fun stuff. <laughs> Amazing. Catherine, thank you so much for your time today, your passion and the work you do. I love it. That was very educational. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much.